Closet Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. Mark Fraunfelder is a blogger, illustrator, and journalist. He was editor-in-chief of the magazine Make, and is co-owner of the collaborative weblog Boing Boing. Along with his wife, Carla Sinclair, he founded the Boing Boing print zine in 1988, where he was the co-editor until the print version folded in 1997. Fraunfelder became an editor at Wired from 1993 through 1998, and Mark currently works at Institute for the Future as a research director. Our conversation starts with Mark's story, his upbringing in Colorado, where his father worked at IBM, spurning his interest in programming, tinkering, and making, and his work throughout the 1980s and early 1990s. We went on to talk about the maker movement, the interplay between entrepreneurs and hobbyists, the blockchain, and much more. I hope you enjoy it. So, Mark, uh, you know, thanks again for uh, for agreeing to be interviewed for the Working Together podcast. I really appreciate it. Your work is very inspiring to myself, a lot of friends that I know, as well as my family. Um, and uh, and to kick things off, I thought it'd be really great if you just kind of gave me um, uh, gave me a, an overview of your story of kind of where you've come from. Uh, we know that you've gone back through. Uh, you know, the, the late 80s, starting Boing Boing. But, but what were things like before then? What, what was your upbringing like that led you to do all the work that you've done? Sure. So I grew up in Colorado, in, uh, in Golden, Colorado, and Boulder, Colorado. And my father was uh, an engineer at IBM. There was an IBM plant in Boulder, and he worked in the tape drive division. And so I got to go to the IBM plant. A lot of times they had family days and things like that, and then times when I could go, go visit and check things out. And I was always really impressed by the giant computers and the spinning disk drives and stuff. It was just uh, amazing to me. And then one day he brought home, I, I, it was an it was a Hewlett-Packard calculator, and I, it might have been an HP-41C, but I, I'm not sure. It was, it was probably around 1972 or 73 when you brought it home, but it had a little magnetic strip reader and these little tiny magnetic strips that you could run through a reader that like snapped onto the calculator so you, that you could load programs or write programs and store them. And I just remember thinking it was the coolest thing in the world. And he let me play with it. And there was like a, a moon, a lunar lander program where you would mm. have to enter the, the amount of fuel that you would you would burn in an attempt to make a soft landing on the surface of the moon. And if you didn't use enough fuel, the velocity would increase and increase. And, and uh, eventually it would, you'd crash on the surface of the moon. If you use up too much fuel, you would start to achieve escape velocity and, and fly away from the moon. And I just thought this is like amazing that you can do this on this little, on this little gadget. So I 
I experimented writing some of my own programs. Um, when I was in, in junior high school, we had a, a computer terminal, the kind that like was uh, not a, a video screen, but it just printed on a, a big spool of paper, like a giant paper towel kind of thing. And it was just this big, clunky, chunky, made a lot of noise. And it was hooked up to a, like a vocational college a few miles away. And we had a, we would use a, uh, an acoustic modem coupler to connect to it. So you would like dial a number. And then when you heard the carrier signal, you would like slam the, the phone into this little kind of a box with two holes in it, one for the mouthpiece and one for the earpiece. And you'd get a connection to the Votech computer, which probably had all the power of a electric Christmas greeting card today, but it was like <laughs> something really cool to have now. Oh, and yeah. so we, my friends and I would write games on it in basic. And that's when I really started getting interested in, in programming things like mm. that. So I, I um, ended up studying mechanical engineering in college rather than electrical. I'm not sure why I did that. I thought it would be easier to understand mechanical engineering than electrical because you could see things move. Right. But that's, of course, not really the case because, you know, a lot of mechanical things in mechanical engineering, they don't move like heat transfer. You can't see the the uh, heat being transferred. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so it was probably just as hard as electrical engineering. But I ended up getting a job um, in the disk drive industry and I worked off and on. Uh, I think I graduated in 84 and I Worked as a, a quality assurance engineer and then a development engineer designing various components of hard drives. But at the same time, I was always interested in things like design and illustration and writing. So I was always really attracted to, to media and creating media. Mm -hmm. And when I was a kid, I was uh, really into comic books, especially uh, comic books by Jack Kirby, who's really kind of highly regarded as one of the most important figures in the world of, of comic books. He created Captain America and um, That's created right. Fantastic Four and Thor and tons of all the, the Marvel when characters you said, that everyone knows today. When you said that name, I was like, That's familiar. How? <laughs> and it, yeah, it's he, my he's childhood. Like, he's the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Kirby's the guy. And so I, I love Kirby. I did like, as a kid, I did like zines about Kirby and um, I was always publishing my own little comic books and, you know, maybe printing one or two copies of them. No kidding. But, uh, you know, yeah. I, I did that and too. I, oh, cool. It's <laughs> fun, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, go yeah. on. No, that's okay. I, I think, you know, a lot of people who are interested in media, that's, that was a way to experiment at the time. Now, of course, they just you just go to the web and you 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 know go to Snapchat or whatever to express yourself. But we did it differently because we just used the tools that we had at hand. And so um, I uh, started uh, getting interested in things like cyberpunk science fiction and underground comic books, um, consciousness altering technology, and uh, in the in the mid-80s, I stumbled across an article in a copy of the Whole Earth Review, which is a, was a great quarterly magazine. It was a spinoff of Stuart Brandt's Whole Earth Catalog that came out in the late 60s. And there was an article about zines, these self-published, very personal magazines that were
were becoming popular because people had access to inexpensive desktop publishing software and the ubiquitous photocopy shop. And I got really interested in that, and I found out that there was a, a metazine called Fact Sheet 5 that a guy named Mike Gunderloy in upstate New York published. And people would send their zine to Mike, and he would review, give them short reviews and put out this 150-page zine called Fact Sheet 5 that had reviews of hundreds and hundreds of zines every issue. It was crazy how many zines he was able to go through and review. But he did it. And so that was, it was kind of a way like a, the Yahoo of zines. It was like mm. a directory of zines on pulp. And so um, I ordered a bunch of zines and then um, started making my own zines, different, a few different ones. And finally, we, my wife and I made one called Boing Boing that we really liked that kind of had all of our interests in it. We sent it into Fact Sheet 5 and Mike gave it a, a good review and we ended up selling all 100 copies that we printed really quickly. And we got a call from a, a guy who ran newsstands in New York, and he asked for copies so he could sell them on his newsstand. So we printed 200 copies of the second issue and sent him, I think, 100 copies. And again, we sold out. So issue three, we printed 400 copies, and we just started picking up more and more distribution until we finally got to about the, our, our, our last print run was 17,500 copies. And we would have kept on going and continued it as a zine, but the independent zine distributors at the time, two of them went bankrupt right around the same time, and they ended up owing us like tens of thousands of dollars, as well as a lot of other zine publishers who got burned in that world. And But, but you know, at that time, that's when the web was starting to take off in the early 90s. So we just kind of moved Boing Boing over. Mm-hmm. I think in 1993 was when we registered the Boing Boing domain and started putting articles up. And so 93 till now, what is that? That's a long time, 24 years or something. Is that how long it is? Oh, my God. I'm trying to do math. Yeah. I'm terrible. <laughs> if you go all the way back to history as a zine, that's been keeping me busy for a really long time. Um, I also do other things as well. Um, I uh, was an editor of Wired magazine. I started working at Wired in 93 when the third issue came out. And uh, it was, I I loved working at Wired. It was Mm -hmm. unlike all the other magazines that were out there. The design was like really bold and completely different. And I think that was because our, our creative director team, Barbara Plunkett, I mean, uh, John Plunkett and Barbara Coor, they were not magazine designers. They were like museum signage, signage designers and doing annual reports and things like that. So they brought a, a different skill set to a magazine and kind of reinvented the magazine and, and did a great job with it. And I learned so much being at Wired about publishing and magazines. And um, so that a lot of what I learned there, I took with me when um, years later in 2004, I started working with uh, Dale Doherty at O'Reilly, the technical book publisher on on Make magazine. And I was a, a co-founder of Make magazine, which is a technology project magazine that's still around. And I was the editor-in-chief there for, I think, 12 years. Mm. And uh, mm. it's... Uh, okay, well, so then all know, the way up until last year, I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, it was a couple. Yeah, well, let's see. I stopped uh, as ed- editor in chief there a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, but I, I, I'm on. You know, I, I uh, am in close communication with them all the time, and uh, they're great folks. And and the Maker Fair has has turned into kind of a famous. Uh, event that mm-hmm. that cities look forward to and there are mini maker fairs all over the world and uh the bay area maker fair gets over one hundred and twenty thousand people coming to it every year if you haven't been to a maker fair i really recommend that you go there and just the celebration of of ingenuity and what people can do with uh with not a lot of money is amazing mm-hmm. and it's so important right and and this is kind of how it, uh, how how your background feeds into the working together stuff that that I'm that I'm interested in amplifying through the blog and the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, is is looking at this uh, this emergence of kind of distributed production that comes with the maker movement. I think it's fascinating that that you know there's there's not only the DIY side of it, but there's also this. Uh, almost, it's kind of like a a reemergence of the manufacturing sector in these really small little pockets around North America, kind of, and other places as well too. But we've you know we've spent the last thirty years or so kind of uh, outsourcing our manufacturing all around the world, and now it's coming back in this intri- in, in interesting kind of hobbyist way. But also, there's a there's a chance there to not only just do it for your own pleasure, but use it as um, use it as a learning tool, as a as a as a way to teach people about subjects in a different way that is that is non-academic, I guess. And that's that ties in with some of the other work that you're that you're uh, that you're interested in as well as 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 exemplified by the TED talk that you gave um, a few years back. Um, so maybe can you talk a little bit about the value of this maker movement and uh, this kind of hands-on approach to learning um, for our for our society today, for our kids today. Yeah, for sure. And I think that you know one of the great things about the the maker movement is that makers are not satisfied with being mere consumers of of solutions. Mm-hmm. They want to be active participants in in creating a solution that works for them and for the people around them. And so one of the things that, that makers do is they, they create their own kind of educational uh, opportunities for themselves and others for learning. And, and makers are like really open people. You know, I, I didn't, I, I think I could count on half of one hand the number of times people have asked me about how to get a patent on something that they created. Instead, they would say, what's the best way for me to share this information so that other people can make it themselves and modify it and, and mm-hmm. um, improve on it? That, that's kind of the maker mindset. It's like this kind of openness and generosity that is so, so impressive to me and is what made, keeps me interested in, in it is that they're, they're doing it because it's like 
really personally rewarding, not only to do it themselves, but to get other people excited. And, and to see someone else get excited makes them excited. And so it's like a feedback. things like makerspace. Yeah, it, it totally is. So you see these kinds of makerspaces and after, after school programs and weekend programs and things where kids and families get together and spouses to make and learn it's uh, you know the, the, I'll, I'll, a lot of times traditional educational systems, school boards and stuff. They're so intractable. They mm-hmm. are, are you know they 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 do try to improve education, but they're standardized <laughs> testing. They need to teach to the test. They also are concerned with the they're concerned with their own institution of the school board more than they are the students in many cases, and so. Makers are kind of, they, they kind of have this hacker attitude where it's like they're going to route around the interference. Mm-hmm. They're not going to like go to the school board and say, do it this way. Instead, they're going to say, you know, we're just going to set up our own maker type education system and we're going to do it our way without anyone breathing down our neck or telling us what we can or cannot do. Mm-hmm. And that's like something that I, I really I love that it's just going out and doing it. And they've done that in so many ways that the whole maker movement that apply to education and manufacturing and everything where, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, you really needed a large organization to produce a sophisticated product, something with electronics and mechanical components and, you know, wireless and GPS and stuff like that. But makers have created... DIY versions of all the kinds of things that go into an organization. So you kind of, the the advantage of organizations that they used to have is kind of going away. Hmm. If you think of things like, like uh, research and development and prototyping Mm -hmm. and manufacturing, even things like funding and distribution and marketing and sales all those things, there are DIY versions of those that that you can kind of plug into and make use of. And these DIY versions are sometimes free or they're very cheap and they're also effective. So, you know, funding, like things like crowdsourcing, um, prototyping, things like 3D printing and laser mm-hmm. cutting, those kinds of tools that, that makers, if didn't, you know, in, in some cases developed or or they they made them affordable those kinds of things exist now and uh, you know things like the arduino prototyping platform for electronic Mm -hmm. projects so you don't need to be an electrical engineer but you can like make really sophisticated circuits without having any technical experience whatsoever these things are amazing and are are amazing educational tools and there's also thanks to the generosity of people there's like a huge arduino code base out there there are 3d printer model libraries so that you can download 3d models and modify them to suit your needs there are laser cutter laser cutting patterns so that you can print out anything you want from furniture to beehives um, to stereo equipment and things like that so all this, all this stuff is out here, and it's thanks to the generosity of makers mm-hmm. who wanted to share this information. Um, they've created this whole kind of alternate universe of, of innovation that is just, 
they're they're practically begging people to to make use of this. It's like mm-hmm. a huge gift to the world. It's a completely different model, right? It's uh, it's all about generosity, cooperation, sharing, um, all of that, as opposed to kind of um, you know figuring out how to make a buck off of it, competition. Uh, all of these, you know, all of these kind of themes and concepts that uh, that I think usually get associated with tech culture um, and Silicon Valley and things like that. So this takes me to another question I have for you. And I do I do want to get to uh, some of the work that you're doing for the Institute. Um, uh, 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 it's IFTF, right? Institute for Future. Right. Yeah. Institute for the Future. Yes. Yes, it's uh, very interesting stuff there, and and similar themes with distribution in terms of blockchain technology that you're currently doing some research on. Um, so, the maker movement is, in my mind, it's kind of like the punk side of uh, Silicon Valley, and then there's this other, much shinier kind of digital um, seamlessness side of Silicon Valley and these kind of startups with their massive, you know, amounts of funding raised, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you feel like these two worlds, uh, can coexist or do you feel like one is beginning to kind of, um, you know, dominate the stage over the other? It seemed like a few years back maker movement stuff was all over the place. People were super amped about it. We were getting involved in it here back in 2010, 2011 and such seemed to be just kind of emerging in 2012 as well. And then over the last few years, there's just been so much hype around kind of the big uh, disruptors in technology and and this kind of almost shiny um, celebration of technology, whereas making is more about celebrating the messy uh, punk side of doing this stuff. Do you feel like there's a, there's any kind of tension there or anything that's going on? There, there is a little bit of tension, but I also think that, um, that Silicon Valley and startups have kind of learned from, from makers and are incorporating some of what they've seen from the maker movement. I mean, certainly now you see Kickstarter as, has evolved from being kind of a way to like support somebody who has a cool idea to like a, just a big pre-sales engine. Mm-hmm. That's kind of all it is now. And, and established companies are using Kickstarter to do that, to test out their, their pre-sales. So th- they're using uh, in many cases, a lot of the things that makers have come up with, which I think is, is fine. I, I don't. I don't really have a problem with that. You know, mm. one, one example is kind of this world in the world of like espresso manufacturers, espresso machine manufacturers. Um, that the hackers started taking espresso machines and putting a temperature control system into them. Called it's called the proportional integral derivative temperature control system. Kind of a, a mouthful, but it, it, what it really does is uh, locks down the temperature of water in the boiler of, mm-hmm. of an espresso machine, so that you can have much more consistent um, quality of coffee when you use it. And espresso manufacturers who have their own R and D teams and have been 
refining coffee machines for over 100 years never thought of this. But once they saw the kind of the maker community using that, they started incorporating it into their machines. Then you can see these examples of manufacturers kind of using makers as a free research and development team. Mm. And, you know, in one way you could see that as being exploitative, but then in another way you can see that as, you know, ultimately what's happening is better products are being made and they're listening to the people who are passionate about those products. So, you know, the the alternative way to look at it rather than being exploitative is that it's kind of a win-win where everybody gets something better as a result. And it's, you know, the, what would be great, and I, I, it's, it's, it's happening in some cases, is that manufacturers w- will start thinking, oh, maybe I should make my product to be maker-friendly so that they, you know, uh, makers are able to, to modify it or improve on it. Mm-hmm. And then um, that way, we'll end up with something better and everybody will be happy. And um, at Ford did that with their open XC system mm-hmm. where all these, you know, the Ford basically cars today are, are computers with motors and wheels attached to them. And there's, there's 50 different data streams that a typical Ford car is generating everything from the direction that the wheels are in to whether or not the windshield wipers are on, how fast they're going, um, the, the speed, fuel rate, whether the windows are open or closed, the interior temperature, all these things. And so this OpenXC is basically a port for you to stick a, uh, you know, connect to an Android computer or, uh, or a Linux or whatever you mm-hmm. want and get those data streams and do something with them. And, and add features and functionality to the car that Ford's engineers haven't thought about, but they want a passionate users to, to change. So those kinds of things are, are really cool and exciting. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, you know, where, where makers can have an impact in, in the world is, is by helping create better products that, that people really want. And, um, I I also, you know, I, I just am really excited by the idea also that that makers who want to make things for themselves do have an opportunity if they want to make more than one of them and sell mm-hmm. them to other people and make some money. That that's an option if they want to. It's it's much easier to do that now than it was ten years ago. Oh, of course, um, yeah. And even if they don't, even if they don't want to do that. The tools that are out there make it easier to make one or two of these things and have them be really high quality. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have a laser cutter, but I can go to Pinoco.com and upload my Adobe Illustrator drawings of what I want a piece of plywood to be cut out, uh, the shape I want it to be cut out, and I'll get it sent to me in the mail. And so um, I can now make or have made for me some really cool things. And that's mm. something like Dale Doherty, the, the, uh, the founder of Make, like to stress was there, there's handmade, which is cool, but there's also maker-made, which is mm. you don't always have to have your hands on it. It's still maker-made. You know, you're, you're contracting out some of the things, but um, it's still your idea and your process that you're in control of, and you're getting something that never existed in the world before. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, those kinds of tools are out there for, for people to use. And, you know, there's 3D printer companies that can print. You could have something 3D printed in gold if you want. You know, you can have jewelry printed. And um, so, you know, we're at the point really, um, I don't know, was Walt Disney who said, if you can dream it, you can make it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we really are at that point now. And I think, and, and not only dream, make it, but do it affordably. Mm-hmm. And I think that's um, that's really kind of uh, so much of the ethos behind that is what you know, small businesses who are starting up with uh, some sort of product idea or something like this are encouraged to think about doing right. Like, you know, instead of um, trying to create a, a full batch of something and then selling it at a market or something you know, maybe order in a single prototype, take a bunch of pictures of your kid using it, let's say it's some toy or something, um, and and put that all over uh, your Instagram account and see what people think. If they're like, hey, where did you get that funny doohickey? Then you can say, well, you know, I, uh, I made that and uh, I can make more if you want and sell them to you at this cost or whatever, right? And there's so many um, stories from the... Uh, you know, the small scale startup world, like the hundred dollar startup world that fall into that kind of, uh, that framework. And even you could look back to Steve Jobs's, uh, you know, past history there. He was essentially kind of like a, you know, doing a, a maker thing in that sense where they, they build the computer, uh, the shop, the, I can't remember the name of the shop that they went to, but the shop owner was like, yeah, I'll order 50 of these. I'm sure I could sell them. And that was kind of yeah. how they started Apple computers, right? Yeah, um, the Homeview Computer Club, and, and even before that, they were making the, uh, the the blue boxes that allowed people to make free long distance phone calls by yes, right. cheating the phone company <laughs> and make the sounds of coins dropping into the uh, into the machine. So that was like a true true maker project, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a. They're not a very nice one because you're, yeah. you're cheating someone, but <laughs> still, they, that was like you know, that was right in the in in the wheelhouse of making. And it's, it's the notion of hacking the infrastructure, right? Um, and that and this kind of is a nice lead into the work that you're doing at IFTF, um, which uh, you're a director of research there right now. Did you want to maybe talk a little bit? more about some of the other projects i'm aware that you are working on um uh kind of the blockchain futures lab a little Mm -hmm. bit but uh, are you also working in other areas too um yeah i'm working on a few different things um one of the main things that i'm i'm doing is the the content studio for them um along with my other uh partner at Boing Boing, David Peskovitz. He's also mm-hmm. at Institute for the Future. And so we are uh, uh, helping with uh, with Institute's public engagement because mm-hmm. they've been around for almost 50 years and they have a great uh, history of uh, uh, their um, Paul Barron, one of the architects of the internet, uh, was uh, one of the founders of Institute for the Future. And so one thing that's Institute has not done a, a great job of is is telling all the stories of of what they've learned mm-hmm. over over all the years. So so um, I'm helping to work on things like uh, podcasts that that will help tell those stories, explainer videos. I I produced an explainer video about the blockchain 
and it, I think it has about 150,000 views on YouTube already. I'll, I'll send you a link of oh, that. I, I watched and, it recently. Yeah. It's oh, cool. Okay. It's cool. Great. Oh, thank you. And then uh, the, the other thing that I'm really excited about is we're doing an annual publication called Future Now. And we just got the uh, issue uh, about a month ago, and, and I, we're going to work on making it publicly available. And so that will be an annual magazine. I would love to see it be produced more frequently than that. But that I love I love print and mm-hmm. I, I love paper. This is like really exciting for me to to produce something like that. And uh, it's uh, you know a lot of thought into the to the design of it, and kind of a lot of it reflects my love of 1950s and 60s design and um, the kind of size of the old popular science and popular mechanics magazines is basically the same size as the early make magazines were mm-hmm. kind of a, a digesty size magazine. And yeah. And, and then the blockchain uh, technology is really interesting to me too, because of the, the power that the blockchain has uh, not only for, you know, its most famous application, Bitcoin, but for things like governance and peer-to-peer transactions and um, identity and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, The ability to have this kind of distributed consensus and accountability and transparency and at the same time, privacy and security is such a powerful combination Mm -hmm. that the applications are are really interesting um you know the 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 peer-to-peer architecture means that everyone gets to be a participant on the network without any preference of of who is who or who has more power than another person you know and, and in the case of blockchain you can send one cent worth of Bitcoin gets as much priority as sending a hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin from one address to another. Hmm. And there's no one there who can stop it. You know, um, and that, I guess in, in one way, my, I've always been interested in kind of decentralized mm-hmm. systems yeah. because, you know, when, when, when you deal with a centralized system, if you're not at the center then you don't have that much power. Mm-hmm. But in a, a decentralized system, everyone in that network has power to do things, you know, and, and the fact that it's a dumb network is, is a good thing. Like a telephone network is a smart network. And when they make a change, they send it out to the dumb devices and everybody has to be happy with that solution that was sent to you. But when you have a dumb network, like the, the blockchain kind of distributed network, it's up to you to make these really cool applications and devices hmm. to, you know, so you can do anything you want and you can just make an application that, that you share with one other person or five other people or 500,000 other people. But the network is just going to um, make use of it and just send data from one node to the other. That's all it does. And so um, that's why it, it's like really exciting to me. And, um, I, I kind of get the same sense of excitement about the blockchain as I do when I think about the web in the early days mm-hmm. of what it became. When you look at the, you know, what where the web was in 1993 and what it's like today, 
you look at blockchain now, I think in 25 years, it's going to be something that's unrecognizable, but very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I, I feel the same kind of excitement too about it. When I finally learned about what it was and, and just what the implications were for it, I was just kind of, you know, knocked out of my seat almost. Um, and this is, this is from my background, which is in kind of political theory and political science and thinking about governance and how to cooperate better and all of that kind of stuff. I was just like, wow, this, uh, this could be a game changer for so much stuff. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, on the one hand waiting and seeing, and then on the other hand, actively going out there and getting your, getting your hands dirty and trying, trying stuff out, which I, I feel is in line with the same ethos of, of the maker movement, right? This kind of decentralized approach, which I, I agree is just, it's, it's just the coolest. I mean, especially I'm going to, I'm going to quote William Gibson here because I noticed it was on the uh, IFTF webpage, but I love that quote uh, by him, which is, you know, the future is already here. It's just not distributed. And, (laughs) you know, if you think about your dumb network versus your smart network, your smart network is going to accidentally bump into the future and they might scale it up and you might get some innovative things from a company or something, right? But mm-hmm. with your dumb network, the amount of reach that it has to, to, to kind of see where the future might lie um, and then kind of amplify it from that point to give somebody an opportunity to try something out in their little neck of the woods and then amplify that out to the bigger community is huge. I, I agree. Yeah. And, and the, the opportunity, there are so many opportunities. I mean, we're, we're in the kind of the wild west early days of a blockchain. If you think about, I think the, I read that there are about 1 billion people on the planet who have access to traditional banking systems. We're plugged into banks. That leaves an awful lot of people who don't have any banks. Mm. And I think there are, however, there are billions of of people with with smartphones. And so anyone with a smartphone absolutely has access to blockchain technology and Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So they can exchange value with each other Mm -hmm. using that without having to go through any kind of intermediary or middleman or or border control. Um, And so the opportunities are huge right now for for kind of giving people the 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 benefits of having a bank without any of the the negatives mm-hmm. yes i yes absolutely so mark i'm just noticing our time here we've got 4 minutes left before uh before we got to go um, do you, do you have time for a quick rapid round? Sure. This first one here. Um, what book has influenced you and your approach, uh, to your work the most and, and why, or set of books or comic books maybe? Well, let's see. That's really interesting. Um, I would probably say, 
that it would be um, the the books of of Robert Anton Wilson, hmm. who was a science fiction writer as well as kind of a uh, pop philosopher who really kind of made me realize that the way we look at the world is, is, is we absolutely don't have an objective look at the world. We kind of view things through reality tunnels that have been built by our upbringing and our, the culture around us and that everybody sees the world differently from each other. And um, to try to constantly realize that and remember that is uh, something that's really important, that things aren't necessarily the way you think that they are. And um, I, I uh, would also say that a, a lot of the writings of Timothy Leary are really influential mm-hmm. to me as well. Um, and uh, my friend Kevin Kelly, who was one of the co-founders of Wired, one of his favorite qu- quotes is from Timothy Leary is, you're as young as the last time you changed your mind. And mm-hmm. I, I love that quote. And I think it really is that important. Is and Yeah. <clears throat> and I, I think it is important to, to change your mind on things. People like to say, hold fast, you know, stick to your guns and things like that. But I think that's actually a sign of, of brittleness and, and not being as intelligent. And the fact that changing your mind means that you are open to new information and that your facilities for processing that information and comparing it to what you already know, um, means that everything is ticking. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. You gotta, you gotta keep that gray matter flexible. Got to keep it squishy. Yeah, <laughs> sure. That's, maybe that's my uh, terrible reinterpretation of a much better quote. <laughs> no, no, I, I love it. <laughs> um, so another another question here, then along similar lines: uh, Who do you consider to be a mentor, and how did this person impact you? Um, and and kind of what what valuable learning did you get from this person? That that kind of idea. Yeah, you know, I would actually say that uh, Kevin Kelly, the guy who is a co-founder of uh, of Wired, and um, I'm a business partner with him at at Cool Tools, which is a tool review site we do together. Um, and Kevin was one of the uh, it was an editor at the Whole Earth Catalog. Also, um, I've learned a lot about a lot from Kevin. Um, his he's he's never afraid to ask a stupid question, which is great. He's never, he's never been afraid to profess his ignorance about something. Mm. Um, you know, and that's something that I used to not do. You know, I would want to hide my ignorance because I, I would equate that with stupidity, but I've realized that that's not really true. Ignorance is not the same thing as stupidity. And, um, Kevin's just his his curiosity and and love of of learning and experiencing new things and, and like bottomless optimism and enthusiasm is is something that has always been inspiring to me. 
It's a it's a great it's a great trait to have. Anytime anybody's around me who's like that, I'm just like I magnetize to them in a sense. That that's great to hear. Yeah. Okay. Um have to follow up with you on on Kevin. Uh yeah, he'd be great to talk to. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um so one last question because uh, we're running out of time here. Uh, so for anyone on the fence about jumping into making uh, and kind of the DIY side of things that you are so passionate about, what would you tell them to tip them over the fence? You know, I would say to get involved, to to not just make for the sake of, of making, even though there are rewards for that, make something that's going to make a difference in your life and for I think a lot of people, an easy way to get into it is like with food and making things that you normally would buy is like can be really rewarding and help boost your confidence. So things like making your own yogurt and sauerkraut, like your own fermented foods, kombucha, if you're a kombucha drinker, you can save a fortune making your own sauerkraut and kombucha compared to buying it in a store. And it's pretty easy to do. And it's really Mm -hmm. fun to kind of observe and be part of that fermentation process. Uh, And then if you want to push it a little farther, getting into gardening, raising your own chickens, uh, keeping bees, all those things don't require, really don't require a lot of work, but then all of a sudden you're like becoming a producer of of food. Like you're, you're making something that keeps you and your family and neighbors alive that's like a great way. And then once you start doing that, you'll just say, well, what else can I do? You know, what, what other things can I do to change? It's like you, you develop this, this in, in growing self, sense of self-efficacy and you just will want to raise the bar and keep on challenging yourself. Great. Great advice. I like it. Yeah, oh, yeah. And the other advice is to um, not look at mistakes as a bad thing. You should always try to do your best, but you should also welcome mistakes as learning experiences and also great stories to tell your friends when you like screw up something really expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I agree. It's always a better story. A few, uh, you know, a few months or years after the fact, Hey, (laughs) yeah, in the moment, it's like, what the hell did I do wrong? This is terrible. Oh man. Exactly. We've all been there. Okay, Mark. Uh, thank you so much for the call. Um, and, yeah, this was fun. Uh, yeah, it was great to chat. Uh, and have a good day. I'm sorry I kept you a little bit longer than oh, that's okay. expected. Okay. Oh, that's okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, and have a great weekend, Stefan. Yeah, you too. Okay. Okay, talk to you soon. Yep, talk to you later. Mark Fraunfelder is the co-editor of The Happy Mutant Handbook and was the author and illustrator of Mad Professor, World's Worst, and The Computer, and Illustrated History. He is the author of Rule the Web, How to Do Anything and Everything on the Internet Better, Faster, Easier, Made by Hand, and a cool book called Maker Dad, Lunchbox Guitars, Anti-Gravity Jars, and 22 other incredibly cool father-daughter DIY projects. You can read articles and watch video clips of Mark's various TV appearances and TED Talks at www.markfraunfelder.com. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the Working Together podcast, all one word. 
Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. And don't forget to rate and review so that I can continue to bring you the social innovation goods. Finally, if you'd like to receive the weekly Working Together Review newsletter, where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economic strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com.